Oh, Pastor Jason, I was uh, expecting some kind of point you're sharing about the Bruins. <laughs> like, they won the Final Four or something happened 11 years ago, but it was just, that's the way it is, and what an announcement. <laughs> Very funny. Well, I'm sure you were all uh, enjoying uh, the Bruins' victory yesterday. I was quite surprised uh, that they've made it so far, and uh, all the Bruins out there, praying for you. And God will give you grace to focus this week on the right things. Well, here we are continuing on the Gospel of John. By my count, I counted this week how many sermons we pre- I preached from the Gospel of John. It's 102 sermons, give or take one or two. 102 sermons in the Gospel of John. Um, so about two years worth of Sundays devoted to this Gospel. Uh, over about 85 hours together in the Gospel of John, beholding the life of Christ. Oh, it's, it's incredible, isn't it? I mean, just what a joy for believers to study the life of Christ and just learn about Him and grow in cherishing and treasuring Him, learning to behold Him and savoring, delighting, just tasting the sweetness of our Lord. It's been incredible. The good news slash sad news is we have about 10 more sermons left and we are done. So, some of you, that's good news. <laughs> some of you, that's sad news. But we are nearing the end of our study in this gospel. Last week, we looked at the courage of Christ before Annas, and I always love studying the courage of Christ. The world has them all wrong. So many Christians have such a wrong perspective of our Lord, not a victim in any sense. I mean, he was, was God, he was also man, he was a man's man, man of conviction man of intestinal fortitude, I mean, man of guts. And though he was crying and weeping and, and uh, blood was dripping from his body as he was uh, sorrowful at the impending uh, separation from the Father on the cross, when the time came for him to meet his enemies, he went to the line, standing up. And his enemies were on the, on the ground, prostrate before him, when he said, I am. We saw the courage of Christ, the the Mount Everest in a sense, and we went to the Dead Sea, the deepest part, the lowest elevation, and seeing Peter's three denials uh, before servant girls, um, his repeated uh, denials of any association with Christ, and we saw ourselves with Peter. Now, today, we have our Lord before Pontius Pilate, the Roman curator over Judea. The trial before Pontius Pilate begins at John 18.28, and it continues to chapter 19, verse 15. So the chapter separations, the verses were included later. Uh, The Apostle John did not separate chapters 18 and 19. The trial starts at verse 28 of 18 and continues all the way to verse 15 of chapter 19. The title of this uh, sermon and next week's sermon is A Tale of Two Kingdoms. A Tale of Two Kingdoms. It should be obvious to us that one kingdom is the kingdom of the world and the other kingdom is the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Two kingdoms, separate, distinct, uh, diametrically opposed to one another and they are on a collision course, head-on collision course with each other. When I was young, Channel 11, KTTV, Saturday morning, saw a movie called When Worlds Collide. You know, those folks who are 30 and above might have, might recognize this movie. It was remade a few years ago. It didn't do so well. It called Armageddon. Right? It's a modern version. <clears throat> I don't know which version is better, but the first version was pretty good. When Worlds Collide, the first version, it was literally Worlds Colliding. Another planet was on a crash course to Earth, and Earth was preparing, trying to escape and land on another planet. I mean, just not worth it, but <laughs> when worlds collide, and <clears throat> the worlds are colliding here in our passage. Two separate kingdoms, two distinct groups of people, head-on collision. The time of impact is 2,000 years ago. The point of impact is the city of Jerusalem. More specifically, the Roman governor's palace 
that's the, uh, the point of impact between these two kingdoms. These two kingdoms ram into each other, and the impact reveals what each kingdom is made of. The impact reveals the substance, the characteristics, the differences of these two kingdoms. Like the car crash, two cars crash into each other, and the, the aftermath, the collision reveals um, the characteristics of each car, like a Volvo crashing head-on to a Yugo, and you see by what's left which car costs uh, $4,000 and which car costs $40,000. Likewise, these two kingdoms ram into each other and the impact reveals uh, the differences between these two kingdoms. And we found, I found nine differences between the kingdom of the world and the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Nine differences between these two kingdoms. <coughs> we will hopefully go through four this morning and go through five next week. The first difference is that the rulers of the earthly kingdom are immoral and evil. The rulers of this kingdom, earthly kingdom, the world's kingdom, are immoral and evil. No doubt the people are immoral and evil because John 1.11 tells us that he came to his own and his own people did not receive him. Our Lord created the heavens and the earth. He created all humanity. In fact, God chose Israel out of all the peoples of the world to show His love and compassion. He gave the nation of Israel the promises, the covenants, even His presence. And when His own Son came to God's people, His own people were so evil, so filled with unrighteousness, so bent on sin, because they so rebelled in their own sin. They rejected God's own Son. Though He was from God, they concluded He was from Satan. The judge of all the earth was arraigned and judged as a fallen son of Adam. The Lord of glory was treated like a vile criminal. The Holy One was condemned as a blasphemer. Liars gave false witnesses against living truth. Though He is the life and the resurrection, He was killed at the hands of His own people. No doubt the people were sinful. The question is, how high does this depravity reach in the nation of Israel? Is it that the leaders were holy, the leaders are righteous, but they couldn't hold back the sinfulness of their people? Or are the leaders as equally corrupt, maybe more corrupt, more evil than the people themselves. And I believe that is why the Apostle John included Christ's trial before Annas. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they did not include this dialogue, this trial, this indictment of Christ before Annas. Their record only depicts Jesus before Caiaphas, the, the legal high priest, remember last week? The high priest appointed by the Roman government, the puppet of the Roman government, but Caiaphas is not the true high priest. The high priest um, ruled for his whole lifetime. So the true high priest is Annas. And so John, for this reason, describes to us, recounts to us um, the culpability, the responsibility of the true high priest in the death of Jesus Christ. John did this. Um, Let me illustrate this. A a modern day person who parallels what Apostle John is doing here in John 18 and 19 is a man named Mark Felt. Mark Felt. Anyone know who Mark Felt is? Special extra credit for anyone who knows who Mark Felt is. On June 17, 1772, Frank Willis, a security guard, working at the office complex of the Watergate Hotel in Washington, D.C., noticed a piece of tape on the door between the basement stairwell and the parking garage. It was placed there to keep the door unlocked. Willis removed it thinking... The cleaning crew put it there and forgot to to remove it. 
later that night, when he came by the door again, the tape was put back in that door lock. He called Washington, D.C. police. After the police came, five men were arrested for breaking into the headquarters of the Democratic National Committee. The D.C. police thought it was a common burglary crime until it was revealed that one of the robbers had previously worked for the CIA. And in his notebook was a phone number of a man named E. Howard Hunt. And E. Howard Hunt worked for the White House. They quickly suggested, the press got a hold of this, there was a link between the robbery and the powers of the White House, the leaders of our government. But there was no clear evidence linking the White House to this crime. Two Washington Post reporters, Carl Bernstein and Bob Woodward, were working this story, trying to find if there was any link between the cabinet, the staff, even the president to this crime. And they came upon dead end after dead end until an inside source came to them and would reveal hints and, and, and evidences and suggestions that led them to find evidences that led, that linked this crime and the cover-up of this crime directly to the President of the United States, Richard Milhouse Nixon. It resulted in his impeachment and resignation, all because of this man for 30 years. That was um, one of the biggest mysteries of American politics and journalism. Who is this secret source? Uh, Woodward and Bernstein said they'll never reveal the secret source until he died or until he gives us permission. Well, May 31st, 2005, he came out and he said he was a secret source that gave the clues to show that this robbery and the cover-up was directly linked to the President of the United States. Uh, it was confirmed by Bob Woodward. That's what John is doing here. John is saying Jesus was sent to the cross not by a mob of people out of control, separated from the powers of Israel. He was not sent to the cross by the Roman government using the puppet Caiaphas, their appointed high priest. And the leaders of Israel had no knowledge or they were not willing participants. John includes in in John 18 uh, how Christ was sent to Annas the true high priest, a member of the Sanhedrin, to show that the responsibility, the conspiracy, the culpability of Christ's death goes all the way to the top. The leaders of the nation of Israel. John 18 revealed to us the leaders were involved behind the scenes they shed innocent blood and they have the blood of Christ in their hands. So it's not just the people who are corrupt. It's not just some of the leaders who are corrupt and evil, murdering Christ. It goes all the way to the top. The true high priest of Israel conspired to murder an innocent man, let alone the Son of God. Today's passage reveals the culpability of Gentiles. And the representative of the Gentile world is Pontius Pilate. During the Jewish period of history in which our Lord lived, all of the people of Israel were under the bondage of Rome. Roman governors ruled over Israel. In fact, Pontius Pilate was the fifth governor of Judea. He began his reign in A.D. 26 and remained until A.D. 35. And I read a lot about Pontius Pilate this week and... Not very, not very good. He's a coward, evil, and no backbone, hypocrite. Uh, historians say he committed suicide. He was just inept in every way. But I don't want to spend time, precious time, Sunday morning, talking about Pontius Pilate. Enough. Our, our, our John's recount, account here of his, his, his trial with Jesus reveals so much about him. It's enough for us. His cowardly decision on Jesus Christ reveals pretty much all we need to know about Him. 
from the beginning of the trial until the end of the trial, all Pilate says is, he's innocent. There's no evil in him. He is not guilty. His opening question is, I don't know what the accusation is. And his ending statement is, there is no fault in this man. All the way through the trial, Pontius Pilate wants to get out of the situation. Though he's a Roman curator, representative, representing Rome and the powers of Rome, he knows that Jesus is innocent, and yet he does not do what is right. He does not uphold justice as his, he's called to do by the government. Luke 23, 4, I find no guilt in this man. Luke 23, 14, after examining him, I do not find this man guilty of any of the charges you have brought against him. John 19.4 I find no guilt in him. John 19.6 I find no guilt in him. Pilate says again and again, Not guilty, not guilty, not guilty. You guys crucify him. What kind of judge is this? What kind of ruler is this? He is innocent. You kill him. Alright, okay, okay, okay. I will kill him. Since you want him crucified so much, okay, he's innocent. But okay, I will crucify him. J.C. Ryle said, the pitiful and miserable character of Pilate, the Roman governor comes into clear light from this passage. We see a man utterly destitute, bankrupt of moral courage, knowing what was right and yet afraid to act on his knowledge. End quote. In Matthew 27, 18, it tells us that uh, Pilate knew that the leaders of Israel brought him, out of, brought him here out of envy because they were jealous of Christ, his popularity, how the mass of people followed him. That was the reason, reason the Sanhedrin delivered him up and yet though he knew it was right, he didn't do what was right. He did what was completely Unjust. So here, are, here they are, Annas representing the Jewish nation, Pontius Pilate representing the Gentile world, and they are the same. They're sinful, they're corrupt, immoral, wicked men representing the world they live in. It's not that the world is just these people, a mob of people got, got together and crucified Christ. No, the, the evil, the sin, the conspiracy goes all the way to the top. That's the kingdom of the world. Let's compare that to the kingdom of Jesus Christ. And look at the king, the ruler, the leader of the kingdom, of this kingdom. And we find Jesus, the king of God's kingdom, is perfectly holy. Is perfectly holy. I mean, who says this about Jesus Christ? It's Pontius Pilate. He says, not guilty. Innocent. No evil. There is no fault in him. In fact, in John 8, 44 through 47, I'll just read one verse here. Verse 46, Jesus standing before his accusers, standing before his enemies, the Pharisees. And remember verse 44? He said, You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. When he lies, he speaks, uh, he speaks of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. I mean, he wasn't trying to make friends. He wasn't being secret sensitive. He wasn't being politically correct. To his enemies, he says, your, your dad is a devil. You're the children of Satan. And then he presents the question, which of you can convict me of sin? Which one of you convicts me of sin? Convict here means to charge and to prove that charge. The question clearly implies that Jesus not only was not conscious of any sin in himself, but he actually had no sin. The inescapable conclusion is he was without sin because his enemies could not come come out with anything that could indict him of any evil on the part of our Lord. This proves that Jesus was the perfect man. 
his enemies, scrutinized his life, examined everything. They tried to find something to accuse him of and they found nothing. They did not have one single accusation to bring against Jesus. Think about it. If you had enemies who were so filled with hatred they wanted to kill you, and so they scrutinized your life. They went through your files. They went through your tax records. Right? They interviewed your friends, your neighbors. Right? They interviewed your family. Everyone that you, that you come into contact with. I mean the list of sins and, and evil accusations and charges that would stick. For all of us here. For any man in the whole world. And yet the powers that be of Israel connived and conspired to bring one charge against Christ that would stick and they could not. Why? Because Christ was perfect without sin. He was holy. He was righteous. He was just. I mean, the writer of of the New Testament says that again and again. 2 Corinthians 5.21 He knew no sin. He knew no sin. Hebrews 4.15 he was tempted just as we are. It's not like he lived on a high level. He didn't struggle with common temptations of man. He didn't struggle with the struggles that we struggle with. No, he understood temptation. Yet, it was without sin. Hebrews 7.26 It is fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, exalted above the heavens. What about Peter? Peter lived with Jesus for three years. Right? I mean, he lived with him for three years. And he said in 1 Peter 1.19, a lamb without blemish or spot. More revealing is chapter one, chapter 2.22. He committed no sin, neither was the seed found in his mouth. James tells us, no man can control the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. Right? Man, with, man can control all kinds of birds, animals, Right? All things in the world, yet no man can tame the tongue. Peter said, except for Jesus. Never once was the seed found in his mouth. The rulers of the earthly kingdom are immoral and evil. Their height of evil is found in the murder of God's holy son. Our Lord, on the other hand, is perfectly holy. Second difference is The earthly kingdom's reign and authority is an illusion. The earthly kingdom's reign and authority is an illusion. Verse 28, They then led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters, palace of the Roman proctor, curator, the governor, procurator, so that the Roman government might condemn him and, and crucify him. Their reasoning was in verse 31, it's not lawful for us to put anyone to death. So their um, public statement was, uh, we're doing this because it's not legal for us to uh, put anyone to death. Uh, That's not true. I mean, it's true that it was against the law, but that didn't stop them before from attempting to kill Jesus many times. Throughout the Gospels, we know this, they picked up stones. They were ready to push him off a cliff. They conspired to kill him. In fact, in Acts 8, what did they do to Stephen? Did they take him to the Roman government and say, hey, you know, this guy, Stephen, he's, uh, you know, blaspheming. Will you crucify him? No, they didn't do that. They stoned him, right? Uh, what about the woman caught in adultery, John 7? They weren't just acting uh, about stoning this woman. They were fully intent on, on executing her for adultery. So this is all. Let's not, you know, fall for this. Uh, it's not legal for us. That's why we're taking the Roman government. Right. What they're doing is they want to be absolved of any guilt. They're afraid of the people. They're afraid of the masses. Matthew 26, 3 through 5. He said, we must not arrest him publicly and we must not kill him during the Passover because of the uproar among the people. Jesus is too popular. He's gaining too, too powerful. The people will turn on us. If we stone him, if we kill him, man, they're going to come after us. So this is our plan. 
late at night, early in the morning, right, we'll get together, rush through our trials, and send them to Pilate. Pilate's a weakling. He has no backbone. He's a coward. We'll pressure him to crucify Christ. We'll get a mob of people declaring we want Jesus crucified. While people are asleep, they'll have no idea what's going on, they'll wake up in the morning and they'll see Jesus hanging on the cross. A Roman mode of execution. That's not how Jews, Jews executed people. It's the Roman mode of execution. And they'll think, oh Rome, they're so evil. And we will join them. And we'll mourn over Jesus and act like victims with them. And we'll gain greater power. And no one will be wiser. We will not be guilty of the murder of Jesus Christ. Wow, what a masterful plan. I mean, evil, but very masterful. And they think they're in control of the situation as these things, as, as it develops. Their plan is coming together. It's a little too easy. They have it all worked out. Their evil conspiracy is coming together without a hitch. But their control, their, 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 their authority is an illusion. It's, it's fantasy. It's a product of their imagination because the one who is in full and absolute control is Jesus Christ. The earthly kingdom's reign and authority is an illusion, but on the other hand, Christ's reign and authority is absolute. Right. Go down to verse 31. Pilate said, I don't want anything to do with this man. It's not our business. Pax Romana is that we want peace in the land, so we give you semi-autonomy to rule according to your nation's laws. This man has broken a religious law, therefore you deal with him we want nothing to do with him. In verse 30, 31, it is not lawful for us to put us to death. In verse 32, here's a comment by John. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. That was not their plan. Right? Crucifixion by the Roman government, by Gentiles on the cross, was not their plan. It was the plan of God, prophesied by Jesus Christ. Luke 18, 32-33 Son of Man will be delivered over to the Gentiles. He will be mocked, shamefully treated, spat upon. After flogging him, they will kill him. On the third day, he will rise. More specific prophecy in Matthew 20, 17-19 As Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, He took the twelve disciples aside and on the way, He said to him, See, we are going up to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests, scribes, and they will condemn Him to death. And, verse 19, they will deliver Him over to the Gentiles to be mocked, flogged, and crucified. And He will be raised on the third day. The involvement of Gentiles is God's plan. It was always God's plan. In fact, Back in John 3, our Lord said, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, right, the plague of snakes, and everyone who was bitten by a snake died, except Moses lifted up a bronze snake in the wilderness, and everyone who looked upon that bronze snake was healed. Just as uh, that bronze snake was lifted up, so also the Son of Man will be lifted up, so that anyone who believes in Him might have eternal life. This lifting up the Son of Man was the mode of execution, crucifixion. And that was the Roman mode. That was the Roman way of executing um, execution. The one who is in full and absolute control is Jesus Christ. It's ironic, isn't it? The man with his hands bound behind him, he's in charge. The man whose face was struck by a soldier, he's in control. The man who is facing impending execution on the cross, he's a sovereign one. Right? This world, this kingdom of the world thinks, thinks they're in control, they have authority. Truth is, no, they have no, it's an illusion, it's a dream. Turn into a nightmare when Christ comes back. The truth is, our Lord is in charge of every detail, of everything in the world, culminating in 
even his own death, the details of his own crucifixion was designed by Christ, designed by the Father. <clears throat> Third difference, the first difference is immoral evil, Christ is holy, their authority is, a, is an illusion, our Lord's authority is absolute. Third difference, the earthly kingdom's focus is a false righteousness that is purely external. Go back a few verses to verse 28. It's a false righteousness that's purely external. This is, I mean, just absurd. These men go to take Christ, an innocent man, to unjustly execute him. But they themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled and could eat the Passover. They considered the touch of a Gentile to be a defilement, so they would not enter a Gentile's house. They considered that they would religiously defile them, not able to participate in the Passover celebration. So they took care to guard themselves against what they considered ceremonial pollution while they're murdering the lawgiver's son. I mean, how insane is that? I mean, what proof of the worthlessness of religion where it does not move the heart, does not expose such... I mean, it's not blind spot. It, they're blind. Right? They're blind. They cannot see. I mean, they have no conscience. They have no heart. They have no spiritual insight. That's why Christ said, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful. Outwardly, you're all about external righteousness. Ceremonially being clean. External obedience. You're all about washing the tomb clean outside, but within are full of dead men's bones and are all uncleanness. You outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Bishop Hall said, Pilate has more cause to fear, lest his walls should be defiled with the presence of such monsters of iniquity. They shouldn't fear being defiled by the Gentiles' quarters. The walls there should be afraid of being defiled by their iniquity. Well, the kingdom of Christ's focus is opposite. It's a true righteousness that is internal. That is internal. I mean, there is so much in every verse. I, I want to, but you can't just, can't do, you know, just, I don't want to be a running commentary up here. So verse 33, Pilate, Pilate asks, are you the king of the Jews? Do you say this of your own accord? Or did others say this to you about me? Is this a genuine question? Or is this just what you heard? Pilate answered, am I a Jew? Your own nation, chief priests, have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Verse 36, Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. Stop right there. My kingdom is not of this world. He's not here to establish a physical kingdom. He's not here for an earthly dominion. It is a kingdom which took its origin from heaven and not from earth. It is a spiritual kingdom that rules over people's hearts, within people's hearts, within people's wills and consciences. A kingdom which needs no armies or revenues. A kingdom which in no way interferes with the physical kingdom of this world. He is wholly a different kind of king. His dominion was over the hearts of men. He doesn't subdue armies. He subdues evil passions and corrupt desires. And his purpose is to bring souls to reconciliation with the Father. Let me read to you Colossians 1, 12-14. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us 
to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. That's Christ's kingdom. The kingdom of this world is all about external righteousness. It's all pretense. It's all hypocritical. Our Lord's kingdom is spiritual. It's internal. The issue is the forgiveness of sins. It's the redemption of our souls. Fourth difference is that the power of the earthly kingdom is the sword. Power of the earthly kingdom is the sword. Go back to verse 36. Let's conclude what Christ said. My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight, would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. The kingdoms of this world are defended by arms. They maintain armies, engage in wars. Even religion, false religion, is forced upon people by the sword. Because they know it's not true. They know it's bankrupt. They know it's morally empty. Therefore, they force it upon people. And it's happening today. It's happening right now. I'm sure many of you know about the court case in Afghanistan. In February 2006, after a custody dispute concerning Mr. Abdul Rahman's daughters, members of his family reported him to the police. What was the crime? He had a Bible. And he was a Christian. He was arrested after after the police discovered he possessed a Bible. In his case, the prosecution asserts apostasy, which is punishable by death. Prophet Muhammad said, if anyone, a Muslim, changes his religion, you are to kill him. The prosecutors have asked for the death penalty for Mr. Abdul Rahman, calling him scum. They demanded his repentance, called him a traitor, quote, he should be cut off and removed from the rest of Muslim society and should be killed. It's happening right now, this week, and they're judging this man, and there's, there's worldwide attention upon what happened to him. The, the Attorney General of Afghanistan was quoted as saying that he should be hanged. The chief judge of the court said he would ask him to reconsider his conversion. We will invite him, quote, because the religion of Islam is one of tolerance. So we will ask him if he will change his mind, so we will forgive him. But if he will not, then... He will be killed if he refuses to come back. When asked if he regrets what he has done, he said, Mr. Rahman said, they want to sentence me to death and I accept it. I am a Christian, which means I believe in the Trinity. Trinity. I believe in Jesus Christ. But Islam is a monotheistic religion in a sense that they deny the deity of Jesus Christ. They consider that blasphemy. And Mr. Rahman says, No, I believe in the deity of Christ. He is God. They cannot wield a sword and intimidate me to deny my faith. The kingdom of the world exerts its authority through violence, but not the kingdom of Christ. Lucky verse 36, 37 tells us that the power of Jesus' kingdom is the truth. It's truth. Pilate said to him, So you are a king? Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. No, undoubtedly, this, is, this was not his only mission. But in the specific reference that was in the mind of Pilate, our Lord talks about the purpose of his incarnation and the power of his kingdom. He did not come to win a kingdom with a sword, to gather adherents by force. He came armed with no other weapon but truth to tell, to testify, to declare to fallen men the truth about God, 
truth about sin, about the need of a Redeemer, about the nature of holiness, to declare and lift up before man's eyes this long lost and buried truth was one great purpose of His ministry. That was His power. He was not here to collect armies, not to subdue nations in battle. It was simply to present truth to men and to exercise dominion, exercise power by the truth. Hence this tells us the only power put forth in restraining the wicked and convincing the sinner and converting the heart and guiding and leading the people in sanctifying the church is the application of truth to the mind. There is no coercion here. There is no compulsion. There is no force. No one is compelled to be Christians. No. They are made to see by the truth that they are sinners, that God is merciful, that they need a Redeemer, and that an invitation is given, a call is given for them to submit to this truth. I mean, isn't that awesome? This is all the power ever used in the kingdom of Christ. And what do we have? What is our confidence? What is our only offensive weapon? It's the Word of God. We have truth. Truth on our side. John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. John 8, 31, you shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. We don't need an army. We don't need money. We don't need anything of this world. We don't need worldly philosophy, worldly methods, worldly programs. We have the truth. 2 Corinthians 10, 3, 6, Though we walk in the flesh... We do not wage war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but they have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. Our weapon is truth. It's the Word of God. Demolishes strongholds. Converts sinners. I mean, Ephesians 6, 10-17. I mean, I read it this week. The armor of God. Put on the full armor of God. Right. Helmet of salvation. Breastplate of righteousness. The belt of truth. Feet fitted with the gospel of Christ. The shield of faith, which extinguishes the flaming arrows of the evil one. The only offensive weapon is the sword, and it's the sword of the Spirit, which is what? The Word of God. That's our only weapon. That's our weapon of choice. That's the only effective weapon we have against the kingdom of the world. Man, we want to fight. Man, I hear about Mr. Abdul Rahman, and I want to... Take some of you guys on a special, you know, forces mission and rescue this man. Right? We send our soldiers to bleed and die in that nation for freedom and democracy and they turn around and try to execute Christians. Man, my flesh wants to say, you want war? Right? We'll give you war. But that's not Christ's kingdom. That's not our weapon. Our weapon is, you kill us, mow us down, destroy us. We'll preach the truth. We'll give you the gospel. We'll convert one heart at a time. Not with force, not with violence, not with swords, but with the truth of the gospel. How beautiful is that? That's why I love the ministry. That's why I love the church. That's why I love missions. Because we have the truth. I have a fitting illustration of this. From church history, again, it's somewhat lengthy, but I mean, you will find that in the end, it's, it's most fitting. It is from the life and ministry of Martin Luther, 484 years and 13 days ago, or 14 days ago. 
484 years and 14 days ago, on March 10th, 1522, it was a Monday, and Martin Luther was the preacher of the hour, and on this particular Monday, with the chapel service of his seminary, Luther had a problem on his hands. And the problem was his seminary students. As the Reformation made its course, starting in Wittenberg, spreading throughout Germany, he had attracted to the university an enormous group of young men who were training for the ministry. They were fervently committed to the ideals of the Reformation and to the doctrines of the Reformation. They were Protestants. They were protesting. They had zeal, but they had zeal without knowledge. And therefore, Luther had a problem. On the previous weekend, these men went into the houses of the German nobility who were still practicing the Catholic private mass. They were doing the mass privately in fear because of the Reformation. These seminary students forced their way into homes and destroyed the altars. They destroyed the elements. They destroyed their relics. They were right in terms of their theological judgment on the abhorrence of the bloody mass. They knew that it was against the Bible, undermining the gospel. It was a travesty, a horrible thing, but yet Luther knew he had a problem. So he gathered his students together on March 10th. He had them before him as he preached in the chapel, and he raised this issue and he said, Students, you are right to hate the Mass. You are right to label this as heresy, as an abomination in the eyes of the Lord. But you are wrong to go into private homes and tear out the altars. Why? Because the Reformation cannot come by force. It can only come by the Word of God. You can tear up the altars, even pull people away from the altars by their hair, but as soon as you leave them, they will put the altar back, and to the altar again they will go. Brothers, we should preach the Word, but the results must be left solely to God's good pleasure. Certainly to hold the Mass in such a manner is sinful, yet no one should be dragged away from it by the hair. It should be left to God and His Word should be allowed to work alone without our interference. Why? Because it is not in my power to hand or to fashion the hearts of men as the potter molds the clay and fashions them at my pleasure. I can get no further than ears. I cannot reach their hearts. And since I cannot pour faith into their hearts, I cannot, nor should I, force anyone to have faith. That is God's work alone, who causes faith to live in the heart. Therefore, we should give free course to the Word, but not add our works to it. We should preach the Word, but the results must be left solely to God's good pleasure. If you preach the Word and trust the Word, the Word will sink into the heart and do its work. Thus, he will become convinced and acknowledge his error and go away from the Mass. Tomorrow, another would do the same. And thus, God would accomplish more with His Word than if you and I would merge all our power into one heap. He ended his instruction with this. The Word must do this thing, and not we poor sinners. I oppose indulgences and all the papists, but never with force. I simply taught, preached, wrote God's Word. Otherwise, I did nothing. And while I slept, the Word of God so greatly weakened the papacy that no prince or emperor ever afflicted such losses upon it. I did nothing. The Word did everything. The kingdom of this, of this world exerts its power through sword, violence, and force. Not us. Not our Lord. Not our kingdom. We exert our power. To the Word of God. Our only weapon is the truth. Therefore, all of us are commissioned. 2 Timothy 4.2
preach the word in season and out of season. That is why we don't want legalism in our church. We don't want you to obey because of personality or to please your leaders or because of the church. No, we want to just preach the word and let the word do the heart work in our hearts and all of our hearts. Because if we obey God apart from the word, it is not pleasing to Him. It is the, the world, earthly kingdom's way. It's external righteousness, but inside full of dead men's bones. What God desires was for us to understand the word, understand truth, apply it, have a heart change that changes what we do. And that and that alone pleases God. May we clearly understand the two kingdoms, the kingdom of this world and the kingdom of our Lord and King Jesus Christ. And may we faithfully follow Him. Oh Lord, we do lift You up. We raise You high. Lord, through the Scriptures, we see You as You are. Holy, righteous, humble, meek, compassionate, friend of sinners. Lord, You are beautiful to us. You are so glorious to us. And the manner of your kingdom is desirous to our hearts. Lord, we thank you that though we were we were dogs, we were outside the people of Israel, undeserving of anything, yet you gave us crumbs up the table, and it is good to us. For that truth has set us free and through that truth you have adopted us into your family where we call Christ our brother, our friend. We call you Abba Father. Lord, we thank you for this great privilege of being adopted and invited into your kingdom. So may we be loyal subjects. May we be loyal servants to the King not wavering in any way from you and from your ways. May you uphold the character of your kingdom by our lives, by our ministry, so that you will be exalted, you will be glorified before the whole world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.